Are you ready? Part two. Really excited to finish this chapter this morning because I feel like being ready for something is so important because we can say we're ready all that we want, but when it actually happens, you know, we will find out if we were truly ready or not. We are training to get ready for the the big game, so to speak. And Paul, in verse 13 of Acts chapter 21 you remember when uh, his friends were, they were warning him and they were, they were literally like upset and distraught. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen to you. Paul, if you head up in this direction, you know, they're going to bind you and then they're going to arrest you and terrible things are going to happen to you. You know, and so last week we looked at, well, hey, does the Lord call us to do things that are dangerous? Does he only call us to do things that are pleasant and that don't require any bit of risk? And we found out that the Lord actually does call us to do dangerous, difficult things. He doesn't just have us do things that are the tiptoe through the tulips type of experience. We actually see that the will of God can mean danger and it can mean difficulty But our resolve is in knowing that, hey, if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. Whether I'm sleeping in bed or if I have bullets whizzing by my head, which we'll hear about in a little bit. But if it's not my time to go, then you know what? Then I am free to do the work of the Lord. And Paul said, literally, for I am ready. And we we looked at that word ready, which means readily ready. Where I am always ready, he says in verse 13, not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And remember, Paul didn't have a death wish. The key to his statement was found at the end of verse 13, where it says, for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul was readily ready at any moment to do what he needed to do for the name of the Lord Jesus even as we should be today. Lord, I'm ready to do what you want me to do. I think we have to ask ourselves honestly if we are ready to do what God would call us to do. I mean, what if we could fill in verse 13, just as we kind of recap, if we could fill in the blank here in verse 13 where Paul says, I am readily ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem. What if we inserted these phrases? I'm readily ready to be exhausted for the name of the Lord Jesus, to be put down for the name of the Lord Jesus, to be injured for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm readily ready to be discouraged for the name of the Lord Jesus or ostracized or lied about or persecuted or be killed for the name of the Lord Jesus. What a statement. I'm ready to rest for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm ready to enjoy life for the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm ready to have it easy for the name of the Lord Jesus. See, we tend to gravitate more to that area. I know I do. I think we all do. But when it comes to the difficulties associated with walking with the Lord, are we ready? I feel like for us in Orange County, are we readily ready to welcome people into church on Sunday mornings? Are we readily ready to set up chairs or to tear down sound equipment for the name of the Lord Jesus? Or even how about this? Are we readily ready to work in children's ministry for the name of the Lord Jesus? I mean, let's be real here. If our difficulties as Christians extend only to how much we're involved with church, I think we have it pretty good. 
man, I'm readily ready to get up early, or I'm readily ready. I mean, we look at what's happening in the world around us today, where people are being murdered, where they're being persecuted, where they're being beaten, where they're being arrested. Well, I mean, we take Saeed, for instance, still in a prison in Iran. I mean, come on now, like the things that are happening around the world. And then we have a hard time doing things like, well, for the name of the Lord Jesus, I'm involved with what the church is doing. It's not the way it's supposed to be. See, in Colossians 3, verses 23 through 24, Paul writes to the church in Colossae, and he says, And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Do what you do unto the Lord, not unto man. You're not doing it for man. You're doing it for the Lord. Oh, I'm helping this guy out, or I'm helping her out. Well, you may be, but are you doing it as you're helping the Lord? Remember what Jesus said. You give a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, you will not lose your reward. If you do what you do in the name of Jesus, then you're doing it for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then if people don't give you your props, they don't pat you on the back, or you don't get paid for it, or whatever it might be, you're like, I wasn't doing it for any of those reasons. And so if anything happens on top of that, they give me props, and they say, good job. I say, well, you know, it's really the Lord. I'm doing it for the Lord. Amen to that. All right. If someone pays you for it, wow, man, are you serious? Wow, great. Well, I didn't even expect that. I could use that. That's fantastic. But I wasn't doing it for that reason. I wasn't doing it for the other reason. I was doing it for the one reason of honoring God, bringing glory to his name and doing what he was calling me to do. Sometimes I have to wonder if we're like Christian mercenaries. I have to ask myself this because I was tested in this area in a major way. Do I only serve God if I see the kind of results I think that I should see? Do I only do my work for the Lord if the kickback is what it, you know, I think it would be a good one? Because I feel like Satan's just up there saying, yeah, you know what? Maybe so-and-so's not happy to serve the Lord unless they have this kind of thing happen afterwards. Or if they see what they think that they should see. And then you have to ask yourself, am I only doing things for the Lord if it benefits me? Because if we are in that place, that is not the place you want to be because the Lord tells us that whatever we do, 1 Corinthians 10.31, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. And so our prayer and the leadership in our church, we pray for you guys, the body, the, the, the part of uh, our church, the, diff, the different parts, that, that we would be a church that is active, that we'd be a church that's involved, that we would not be a church collectively sitting on the sideline, that we would not be a church collectively compromising and seeing how close can we get to the things of the world and still, quote unquote, have our get out of jail free card, you know, get our fire insurance or whatever we want to call it. You know, we need to be a church that's involved. And I'm hoping that the Lord stirs up your heart to be a witness for him, to be involved with what he's doing, and that whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. Because it doesn't matter if it's dangerous. It doesn't matter if it's not. Because I'm doing what I'm doing for the Lord, and he'll take care of me. And I know if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. But if it's not, it doesn't matter how difficult, how dangerous it might be. The Lord is with me, and I'm doing it for him. And there is not a greater thing that we can be involved in. There is not a a greater lasting thing that we can do than to serve the Lord with our talents and our gifts and our time. To be involved with what he's doing brings such fulfillment. And what a privilege it is as well, because the Lord doesn't need you, and he doesn't need me, but he allows us the opportunity 
You know, I remember hearing my friend tell a story about his son wanting to wash the car with him and how he knew if he let his three-year-old son wash the car that it takes twice as long. You know, because you just rinsed off that wheel. Hey, look, Daddy, big right there of soap. And, oh, man, I just dried that off. You know what I mean? That's the way we are with the Lord, with his work. He allows us to be a part of what he is doing because he loves us and he knows that it will help us and it's fellowshipping with him and it's obedience to him and we find fulfillment and joy in serving the Lord even as our Heavenly Father finds enjoyment when we are doing what he is involved with. And as we continue on now, our new verse this morning, verse 15. So after those days, we packed up and we went to Jerusalem, the same place that Paul knew would be dangerous. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now, Paul wasn't deterred from what he was supposed to do by the danger that awaited him in Jerusalem. Yet, we see that there were Christians living in this dangerous place. Jerusalem being a dangerous place for Paul, what about the Christians that live there? You ever think about that? The things that we may temporarily experience are others' everyday lives. Think about that. The things that we may temporarily experience are other people's everyday lives. So as Paul is dealing with this, and hey, if you go to that area, it's super dangerous. Be a follower of Jesus. They, you know, all of that. There are people that are followers of Jesus living in that. And when we, out of obedience, step into their world, when the Lord's calling us to go to a place that may not be pleasant or might mean sacrificing something, when we, out of obedience, step into that arena or into that person's world, we're fulfilling what the Scriptures say. In Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You step into somebody else's world because the Lord's calling you to be there. You are bearing one another's burdens. You're going to a dangerous area or you're involved with a church or you're helping you know, people that are setting up or tearing down practically in a church. I'm stepping into your world because it's not my world. That's your world. And I'm actually going to bear your burden by doing something that might not be easy for me to do. So Paul finds himself in the middle of what was dangerous for him to go into, but found that people were already there and that was their life. In verse 18, on the following day, Paul went with us uh, to James and all the elders were present. Just by way of reference, James is the half-brother of Jesus. As you know, Mary was with child, the virgin birth, Mary, Jesus. But she eventually had um, other children with Joseph. And James was, her half, was uh, Jesus' half-brother, and he was the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And when he had greeted them, verse 19, Paul told in detail all those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And then verse 19, just those two words coupled together in detail, basically meaning that he told them every single thing that God had done through his missionary efforts to the Gentiles. Everything. And when they heard it in verse 20, it says they glorified the Lord. That is the way it's supposed to be. When somebody hears the great things that you've been involved with, it should be that they glorify God. Usually, unfortunately, they glorify the man, the instrument, not the one who created it. 
when we do what we do for the name of the Lord Jesus, the things that come forth from our lives should be found to praise God. Man, what I do brings glory to God. What I do causes people to want to know God. They glorified God. Whoa, are you kidding me? That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Those guys? Wow. It wasn't like, whoa, you're so awesome. You went all the way over there. No, it's like, look what God has done. Look what God has done. And I think this is the right perspective. Actually, scratch, think, and put no. I know that that's the right perspective for us to have. Praise God for what he's done. Praise the Lord for what he has done. They heard what Paul had said, and they glorified the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, Each one's work will become clear. For the day, speaking of the day of judgment, the day where the Lord has all of us stand before him, will declare what kind of work you've had or what you have done. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test one or test each one's work what sort it is. So we stand before God, and when we stand before the purity and the righteousness and the holiness of God, anything that's of the flesh is going to be burned away. And the only things that we do for the Lord are the things that are going to last through all of that. So as you see the trend here already, whatever I do, I do for the glory of God. Whatever I do is so that the name of God can be praised. Whatever I do, whether it's safe or dangerous, I do for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then when I stand before God, those are the things that last. So when they heard what he had said, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, you see, brother, verse 20, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that... You teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now, Jerusalem was obviously where a majority, a lot of Jews dwelt. And it was the holy city. It was the birthplace. It was the seat, if you will, of the law of Moses through the teachings and and the synagogue and the temple. And these people were coming to know Jesus. And they had traditions pulling them in one way, and they had their relationship with the Lord pulling them one way. And they were starting to find out, like, how do these two things reconcile each other? How do these traditions and ceremonial things line up with the things that are found through a faith, a relationship with the Lord? And they were accusing Paul that you are telling the people that they shouldn't do these things anymore. He wasn't telling them that, but let me ask you this question. Maybe this is more relatable. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? I think we all have. Have you ever found out that somebody was talking about you behind your back and saying things that were just so off the wall that you're like, are you kidding me? I mean, I don't know about you, but I found myself where other people knew more about me than I knew about me. It's not a good feeling, you know, and usually people are talking behind our back. It is bad stuff because we don't typically have a problem with people talking about our, you know, talking about us and or saying good things about us behind our backs. Now, do we? I told you, stop talking good about me behind my back when I'm not there. We don't have a problem with that. It's like, hey, you guys can, you know, hey, whatever entertains you. I mean, I'm glad if I could be the center of your conversation. That's great. You guys can, you know, go ahead. But it's bad things. 
Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrew, a Pharisee. Concerning the law of Moses, the man was perfect, blameless. And he's being falsely accused that he's telling people to forsake Moses and all of the law of Moses. And these allegations were not true. He was showing them how the law of Moses was fulfilled by what Jesus did and that how ceremonial things don't make you right with God. Traditions of man don't make you right with God. Being religious doesn't make you right with God. Because we can grow up in religious homes and we can absolutely be the furthest thing away from being right with God. We can go to church on Sunday. We know certain prayers. We know certain things of the Bible. But our lifestyles don't... Our lifestyles and and what we profess don't add up. And so, even as it was in Judaism, so it is in every religion, Judeo-Christianity, where people can think that their religious actions make them right with God, when in essence it's faith in Jesus and Him alone. Now, if certain people have traditions, and they have certain things that they feel they're comfortable doing, that that's okay. It's a tradition. If that's something that you feel that you would like to do, all right, that's fine. It doesn't go against God's word. No, that's great. But to say that everybody else has to have that same tradition and that even those traditions, as Jesus said, you're teaching the commandment or teaching the traditions of men as the commandments of God, that's where it becomes a problem. So Paul is here in Jerusalem and they're saying, hey, these people, they know you're here and they don't want to talk to you. They think that you're doing all this other thing, all these other things. And, and so they say, what then in verse 22? The assembly must certainly meet for they will hear what you, they will hear that you have come. Therefore, Do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Verse 24, take them and be purified with them. This is the vow of the Nazarite. And pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, remember the Jews that followed after the law of Moses and the Gentiles who were just grafted in through faith in Jesus, he said, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have, no, uh, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing, which means they don't have to follow the law of Moses, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from sexual immorality. So here you see these two different groups of people, one very traditional and one absolutely not, starting to have these, you know, where do we blend and how do we, how do we merge these two things together? Now, in Romans 12, verse 18, Paul wrote to the church in Rome and he said, if it is possible, listen, listen to this, Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As much as is within your power, be at peace with everybody around you. Now, this was a major cultural and religious conundrum, so to speak. Like, this was a, this was a big deal for Paul, but not one he was unfamiliar with. In many parts of the world, culture and religion are interwoven. Often, in cases of the gospel being presented, one must be mindful of the things. One must be mindful of the things that hinder the gospel from going forth, such as an ignorance to customs and religion. I mean, like, I'm trying to share the gospel in India, and I give one of them, or I'm eating a piece of beef jerky, one of the Indians uh, that, that live there. 
and you know that you do, they don't eat beef, and that's, that's something that, that, that's like, that's a reincarnated relative, you know, and they believe those things. So you need to be mindful of those kind of things when you're going to preach the gospel. Don't put in front of you stumbling blocks. Like, be aware of those things. As much as is within your power, be at peace with all people. Or, you know, I want to start a Bible study for, for the, the group of Chinese that, that are in my area. And the only place that's available is a funeral home where there's a cemetery. But nobody shows up, and I just don't get it. Why aren't anybody coming? Well, because of the Chinese culture and the fact that cemeteries are associated with bad luck, and they will not go anywhere near that culturally. So am I aware of these things? Do I understand the people that I'm trying to minister to? It doesn't mean that you have to agree with it, with what they believe. But you need to be aware of it in order to remove, as I said, any stumbling blocks to the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 22, Paul wrote and said, and you guys can listen along or you can read along if you like. It says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. This is a very powerful passage of Scripture that many times is misinterpreted and even abused. See, on the subject, on the subject, it's necessary to address the misinterpretation of this passage and the key to not misinterpreting, basically saying this means something that it doesn't mean. It's found in the middle of verse 21. And in your New King James Version, it's probably uh, inside uh, parentheses. It says, not being without law toward God, but under law towards Christ. Not being without law toward God, but under law towards Christ. Saying that they may not be fulfilling the law of Moses, right? They, but they are under the law of Christ. Like, they're following Jesus. Because the Jews, I, I, I became as the Jew. Remember, he was raised a, a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He knew their customs. He knew their traditions. And so he blended in with them in order to reach them. Even as he would preach the gospel, he was aware of the customs and traditions of the people that he met. However, the under the law towards Christ is the key. Because you don't go against God and you don't compromise your relationship with God in attempt to reach someone else. That is not what this passage means in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. I do not sin so that I can reach people that are sinning because then I'm no longer under the law of Christ. See, there's this thing happening around the area called beer and hymns where people get together and they drink and they sing old church hymns. And I just read an article on this just a couple days ago where their motto is sing one, drink one. And... Now, this isn't what Paul is saying, becoming all things to all men. I don't need to go and drink alcohol in order to reach people that are drinking alcohol. I don't need to go and smoke pot so I can reach people that smoke pot with the gospel. I don't need to join organized crime so I can minister to the mafia. I do not need to go clubbing in order to minister to people that bar hop and go clubbing. 
I don't need to sin to reach people that are sinning. See, the whole foundation, the whole foundation of being credible as an ambassador for Christ to the world is that you're not like everyone everyone else when it comes to sinful lifestyles. That's the very foundation. You're a credible witness for Christ and his changing, working power when you're not like the world. You're no different than I am. The world would say, why do I need Jesus? Yet in our attempt to be evangelistic, we're blurring the lines between what is of God and what is not. And in the end, we're left with a diluted, watered-down gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 5.22, Paul wrote to the church and he said, abstain from all appearance of evil. I don't want to be in a place where I get lumped in. You know, you're guilty by association. That's the way it is. If you're, the, you're there and you're at the bar and you're sitting there and everyone else is getting wasted and you're not, but you're going to be a part of that group. They're going to lump you. Oh, those are your friends. That's your, oh, yeah, right. You weren't. No, I wasn't. I promise. No, you're, you're in an environment that you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be in. And, and you know, I go to a club and, the, and the, I'm going to go preach the gospel and it's so loud in there. You know, it's so loud. It's just like banging, you know, kick drums and all that kind of thing. And you're like, Jesus loves you. What? God loves you. Eh? Jesus is the only way. Okay, you can pay for another drink. That's great. You know, whatever. You know, you don't, you, you don't put yourself in the environment. You don't. You don't get involved with the sin in order to minister to somebody that's in sin. Find that neutrality, you know, find that neutral place. Invite them to church, take them out to coffee, but you don't sin in order to reach somebody. That's not becoming all things to all men. And that can be misinterpreted and abused even today because what you find out is that people get sucked into a way of the world. And they start thinking, well, in order for me to relate with these people, I need to do what they're doing. No, in order for them to see a difference, they need to see one in you. See one in us. And know that there's a better way. And that's through following Jesus. And so verse 26, um, Paul says he took the men. In Romans twelve eighteen again, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And Paul believed this would be something that would help him. Bridge the gap and be able to minister more effectively to his Jewish family, his friends. And then Paul took the men and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each of them. Now, when seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, verse 28, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he's also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And it says in verse 29, parenthetically, For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with Paul in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Now, it was absolutely prohibited for a Gentile to enter in past the the, the court of the Gentiles in the temple. It, you, it, you would be put to death if you were a Gentile, not a Jew, not purified, and would go into the place where for Jews only. For those followers of God. Any person not a Jew entering would be killed. And so they say, Trophimus, this Ephesian, he, we, Paul took him in there. And, and it says all the city was disturbed and the people ran together, seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, 
news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Now, this is why it says, if it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Remember, Paul already knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. And you know what? He did whatever he could to be at peace with those people. And sometimes you will do whatever you can do to be at peace with somebody, but they just will not have it. Furthermore, Paul said he was ready. Here's where the rubber met the road right here. It's one thing talking the talk, and it's another thing actually doing it. It's one thing to say you're ready, and it's another thing entirely to actually be ready. And though sometimes you are ready, and you just don't know it. That's a pleasant surprise. Where you're like, man, I don't know if I'm ready. And the Lord's like, yes, you are. Here we go. But Paul said he was readily ready not only to be bound, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. And here they are in verse 31, seeking to kill him. But remember, as I said earlier, if it's not your time to go, it's not your time to go. And there's not one thing anyone can do to change that. One of my friends, uh, his name's Chad Williams. He actually serves at Harvest, uh, Orange County. And he is a former Navy SEAL. You see him on Fox Television. He's written a great book. Uh, he speaks all over the place. But uh, him and his brother and family used to come on Monday nights uh, back in the day. And I remember him telling a story of how uh, he was on top of a hum, Humvee with a, with a big, uh, big gun on top. And they were in the Middle East, and there were people up in the buildings. And he said, literally, there were bullets just whizzing by his, by his head. You know, like, and, and, and he made it out absolutely unscathed. It wasn't his time to go. And, and, and it doesn't matter where you might be. And, and then we see Paul. He's getting beaten. The crowd is going crazy. They're, they're all stirred up. It's the angry mob. And it says in verse 31, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. So Paul had been attacked by the murderous mob before. Talk about a flashback. <laughs> not, not again. He must be thinking, you got to be. You know, but he already knew. He already knew. Or maybe he was so confident in the Lord to deliver him that even in the middle of the mob, he knew that if it was God who wanted him still alive, that he would make a way for him. And lo and behold, he did. Immediately, verse 32, the Roman commander took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So from where the temple was, just two flights of stairs from the court of the Gentiles, were 500 Roman soldiers. And they came busting down. And the commander came near and took Paul and commanded him to be bound with two chains. Basically meaning he was chained to a soldier on his left and a soldier on his right. And you remember the prophecy. Remember what, uh, what was said of him, that whoever owns this belt and he bound his hands like this will also be bound in Jerusalem. Literally fulfilled. So, commanded him to be bound with two chains and he asked him who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude, verse 34, cried one thing and some another. And so when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. You imagine that? They, they pick up Paul and like, let's get out of here, you know, because the people were so crazy. For the multitude of the people followed after crying out in verse 36, away with him, away with him. Man, if Paul would have heard the stories about what happened when Jesus was, remember, betrayed and presented before Pilate, and Pilate said, who should I release? Should I release Barabbas or this one Jesus, whom you call the king of the Jews? John 19, John 19, verse 15. They cried out, away with Jesus, away with him, away with him, crucify him. 
And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Away with him. And here Paul is, as the people trying to kill him are screaming, Away with him. And we see truly a servant is not greater than his master. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? So the, the commander's like, aren't you that Egyptian guy stirring up all this problem? Because even the Jewish historian Josephus says that there was an Egyptian that led like this ragtag group of 4,000 soldiers or so. They claimed that they were going to take the Temple Mount. And Rome just drove them out. And the Egyptian leader, he, he fled. He was never found. So Paul's like, uh, nope. I'm not him. Thank you. Man, what a poor... I mean, first he's like, he's teaching the people things against the law, against God, against all this. And And then he's like, he's the Egyptian leader, you know, and all this kind of stuff. What's going on here? Paul said in verse 39, as we conclude, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. What? I just saved you out of there. Now you want to talk to those people? So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language saying, Aha, that's where we end today. So tune in next time to see what happens when he speaks. And you can go ahead and read ahead, but spoiler alert. All right. Remember Acts 21, 13, Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. It sure seems that Paul was ready. He was talk and he was action, even as we should be. So we ask ourselves that question, hey, are we ready? Are we readily ready? Are we ready to do what God has called us to do? I hope that we can say yes. And if you say, no, I'm not ready. And you say, Lord, please help me to be ready. Because we want to be ready for what the Lord has in store for us.